and welcome to Plant CEO. In today's episode, I'd like to welcome Irina Gerry, the CMO from Change Foods. Hi, Irina. How's it going? Good. How are you? Good. Thank you. It's been uh, very good to get you on the show. I know we were we were talking for some time now when you were at Denom, and uh, great that you're here with us after starting your new role, which is literally a week old Bless. now, right? That's right. Um, so yeah, you're now at Change Foods. Um, can you tell me more about the company? Absolutely. Uh, Change Foods is an early stage food tech startup, and we are in the precision fermentation space. For those of you who don't know it, is it's a new space that's evolving in food tech where we are um, using fermentation process to produce bioidentical compounds to dairy in our case. So we can produce dairy uh, proteins, lipids, etc. And uh, so which product will you be sort of starting uh, working on first? Our, our first out the gate product is going to be cheese because, okay. and we can, we can get into, but uh, of all of the uh, plant-based and vegan products out there, I think cheese is the one that has the most grapes um, from, from consumers in terms of its texture, taste, performance. Um, and so we thought, what, what could be a better way than to give people the cheese that they know and love from, from dairy uh, made without a cow? So yeah. we decided on cheese. No, that's that's a good one. I mean, um, you know, I was on this uh, vegan group the other day, and so, so there was a new member that had joined, and they're saying, you know, what's what's the I've become a vegan? What's what's the best cheese to have? And people, somebody wrote, you know, just stop having cheese for like two weeks, <laughs> and therefore <laughs> just you forget like, about it. Just forget about it, and then and then you'll be pleasantly surprised if you try <laughs> the versions that are available at the moment. But you know, there's. The, the, People are getting there, aren't they? And there's there's lots of different types of cheeses that people are trying Absolutely. to create now. And there's lots of innovation happening in this space. So that's and really- Land-based cheese has gone through a massive evolution over the past few years. You know, if you, if you looked at, you know, three, five years ago, you would have had just a couple of options, um, you know, kind of legacy brands that made it out of tofu, you know, fermented nuts, maybe. Um, there wasn't a whole lot of choice. And over the last two or three years, there's been an explosion of brands and I think the taste has come along quite a ways. So there are brands within plant-based cheese that are quite good. Um, and especially if you are following, you know, vegan or plant-based diet, you will find choices that are probably satisfying. But if you are looking at a larger crowd of, you know, flexitarians and people who can choose to opt in and out, most of them still find it to be not quite to par. With yeah. yeah yeah so um you know that's i think it's really important um so there was a, a study uh, i think it was uh, last year by rethink uh, x uh, and they're yes. predicting um that the u.s dairy and cattle industry will effectively collapse by 2030 so we know there's going to be a lot of disruption in in this decade um and obviously we're, we're talking about the startups change foods being one of them um what else do you see in this space? I mean, we, we, we know it's going we know the industry is dying. There needs to be more innovation. Why aren't also the, the big guys uh, in this area doing more, more innovation in this space? Mm -hmm. Well, so first of all, that's a massive and kind of out there prediction, right? If you think about it, you take this, this multi-billion dollar industry and, and they're saying, hey, this will collapse in 10 years. 
Um, and I think there's you know, a round of assumptions and kind of triggers as they put it into that study to say why that would be the case. And specifically, I would say there's, there's a couple of trends that are already underway, right? They give the, these researchers a reason to believe that they're right is one is plant-based uh, you know, dairy, plant-based milk has already been on the market for, for a time. In the US, it's about 15% market share. In, in Europe, I believe it's 20. Um, so it's already a sizable chunk. And if you look at the growth of, of the dairy milk um, business, it's, it's been on a decline for the last few years, driven largely by the fact that people are switching to plant-based. Um, and when you look at the incoming technologies with the fermentation, where now you have a much more efficient way to produce some of the same dairy products, it starts to put a lot more pressure on that business. And the reason the pressure come, comes, I think, from, from two places. One is the sustainability, kind of giving consumer a choice, right, to, to choose products that they know and love and taste great, but don't carry the burden of um, animal agriculture. I'm sure your viewers know a lot of statistics around animal agriculture and, you know, the CO2 emissions, the methane emissions, the water pollution, the monocropping and pesticide use all kind of comes wrapped with that product. So one is giving consumer a choice. Two is, and not immediately, right? But the, the fermentation technology has the promise to deliver the same kind of food and, uh, you know, whether it's cheese or milk or ice cream at a lower cost. The reason for that is if you think about what it takes to produce a gallon of milk or a pound of cheese, there's a lot of inputs, there's a lot of water, there's a lot of protein, there's a lot of uh, labor, transportation, et cetera, that goes into that. When you use fermentation process, you're essentially taking it down to a brewery uh, type setup. And I'm oversimplifying, but you're using uh, you know, a bacteria medium and, and you're giving them food in form of sugars and you use a fermentation tank and, and they essentially produce the compounds. So your inputs to outputs are so much more efficient. And when you get this industry to reach a certain scale, you start to become price competitive and then price advantaged. And so dialing that all the way back to dairy industry, today it is already struggling with razor thin margins. When you start taking giant chunks of market share and you are starting to see products that are coming in at potentially below uh, pricing points, that just creates such tremendous pressure that, that the pieces start to fall. Um, and I think that's what the uh, authors of that study concluded is that you, you, know, you take a few of these key pillars and the whole system starts to, to fall apart. So obviously that these uh, fermentation process is not new. So it's not like new science that we're working on, right. Such, right? We've been doing it for it, years. Right, it is. So, you know, ancient fermentation, like you look at beer, you look at kombucha, you look at kimchi, people have been using microbes to transform their food, right, into something different forever. Um, what's new and different about this technology is that it's actually, instead of just kind of using the native microbes like you would do in, in kimchi or in beer that are just present in the environment, the precision fermentation space is actually being of picky and choosy about the strains that they're that they're using as well as programming those strains to do very specific things so it's a much more precise process 
that delivers a precise outcome. But I would say even that has been around the cheese that you eat today, the dairy cheese is made with uh, what's called non-animal rennet. Mm. The rennet is traditionally, you know, way back in the day was derived from the calf's stomach. Well, as you can imagine, that's a very unfriendly way of, of getting a compound for your product. Mm. And so for some years, the industry has been producing this rennet through fermentation, through precision fermentation. Same thing with insulin that, that people consume in, in um, people with diabetes, that insulin is produced through precision fermentation. So there's a number of products in market that you are probably using or consuming, you know, the famous um, Impossible Burger made their heme through precision fermentation and it's in market and it's consumed by people safely. So I think there's, that story just hasn't been told, right? The familiarity among consumers doesn't exist and yet we're using it and, and it's been proven safe and it's and, and it, it can do magical things. So that's why I kind of jumped on board with that industry because I could see the potential and kind of the groundswell that's coming driven by this technology. And I think it's going to be fascinating. Yeah, I, I think so too. And um, will uh, Change Foods after cheese be working on, uh, on milk, uh, alternative milk? You know, the, the world's our oyster. Uh, like I said, the technology is can be leveraged in many ways, right? Um, cheese, yogurt, ice cream, milk are all part of the product set that we could produce. Mm. I think it, it's going to be part of, um, you know, strategic decisions that we would need to make in terms of manufacturability, scalability, and market potential. So I'm not going to give you the whole playbook, but yes, uh, there's definitely yeah. plans to go beyond uh, beyond cheese. Yeah. And when do you think you'll be able to release your first, you know, your first product to market? Um, test product probably soon in, in, I would say in about 2022 sometime. Um, and then we're, you know, planning on like a full retail launch by 23. Okay, right. Um, and in that, in that process, I guess there's a lot of fine tuning, you know, things like the fats, the aromas, or, or that sort of side that you're you're working Correct. on, I guess. Right. I mean, there's like I said, this this is your your traditional food process, right? Where you know, I I'm very familiar with coming from Denel, right? Making plant based products. There's there's a lot of that. There's also a lot of this deep tech, right? So I don't want to oversimplify the amount of of technology and research um, that goes into getting these bacteria to do exactly what you want them to do um, and produce these compounds, right? So this is not something that anyone can pick up and do in their garage. Um, and so there's there's kind of the upfront deep tech work that, that takes place. There's a product formulation work that takes place. And then there's obviously scaling, manufacturing, distributing, you know, getting in front of the consumer. So it's, it's quite a chain of events that needs mm. to take place. Mm. Um, and the other piece to it is, um, you know, regulatory um, regulation approval, right? Uh, the, the products need to be certified by the FDA, et cetera. So there's, there's a lot of streams that, that need to happen in parallel with, with this technology that, mm. you know, a lot of companies are kind of just embarking on, which is again, another fascinating part of the space is it's so new um, that it doesn't even have a proper name. 
um, among the among all of the players in the space, we haven't quite yet aligned to what do we call this thing? Yeah, yeah. Uh, exactly. Which is another part of you know uh, what I want to go and and work on is is getting to a commonplace understanding of uh, you know some of the naming and and conventions and how we talk about this technology. Yeah. Can you tell me uh, a little bit more about your 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 background story, actually? Sure. Um, <laughs> well, I have a long and checkered past. <laughs> um, I've um, I was actually born and raised in Russia in a in a, a relatively small science based town that was founded um, to support a nuclear research facility. So I'm I kind of come from this foundational science research community where, you know, my parents and everybody I knew was kind of related to this research institute. Um, and so I had this really interesting kind of a communist bubble upbringing. You know, I, I grew up still in part of my childhood was, was during communism. Um, and, and, you know, a lot of people like to ask me, well, how was it? You know, was it as bad? I'm like, no, it was actually quite great. But, you know, I lived in this, in this very special kind of designer town, so to speak. Um, and then I, um, right out of high school, I actually was fortunate enough to get introduced to uh, United World Colleges. It's a, it's a series of colleges worldwide uh, where they take kids from kind of from high school age before college, and it's an international baccalaureate degree. And I was fortunate to go to a school in Wales, so yeah. kind of close to your home. Yeah, not um, too far. <laughs> not too far. So, so you can imagine I dropped kind of from Russia to Wales. Um, you know, my parents couldn't even come with me. We didn't have the, the funding for them to kind of escort me in. So they, they dropped me off at Moscow airport. Um, and, and there I went to another country to, to live with, you know, 400 kids from, from, you know, all these different countries. And it was a fascinating experience that kind of, you know, really blew my world open, right? If you think about how your mindset is as a teenager, you're like, I got this, I know the world, like I, I figured it out. And then you go to a place like that and, and it just challenges every single um, assumption that you have about cultures and people and what's normal and what's out there, right? And, and, and so this kind of opened up the world for me. Um, and out of that, I really wanted to continue my learning um, in another country. So I, I picked the United States and I ended up in a, a Minnesota of all places. Um, I went to school at McAllister College where I studied economics and psychology because I was always fascinated by this intersection of people and business, right? And why do people do what they do and, and how does that translate into business? I feel like those two are, are such massive driving forces of just progress in the world. Um, so I did that and then I uh, went and worked at Deloitte Consulting as a consult, kind of a classic management consultant, traveling, um, going to different companies, understanding how do different CEOs, right, and leaders within these companies think about their business and, and kind of got that really high level view of, of strategy. Um, went to Harvard Business School, where I really discovered my passion for brand marketing um, and the reason I dug into that space was because it is, again, a combination of, you know, general management, you're running a business, you're, you're making decisions, you own the P&L, but you're also looking out and understanding consumers and what do they care about? What are those needs that they can't really articulate yet, but they have, right? And then you can, again, as I mentioned to you, what I love is, is stringing this entire process from there's a need out there to product on shelf. There's, there's a hundred steps in between and I love every single one of them because every single one of them 
brings opportunity to shape the end product and to make it what it is on shelf. And, and there's nothing I love more than, than, than seeing my babies, you know, hit the shelves. I, I just feel such pride and joy um, when I see that final product come to life and then seeing people use them and, and you know, enjoy them in daily life. So that's kind of become my home base um, at, at a business school. And then I, I had a pleasure working at Procter & Gamble, kind of learning the, the fundamentals of, of, of marketing there. And then uh, my last stint was at Danone. Um, and in the middle of all of that, I managed to also live in Alaska for three years. So I've hit all the cold places. I think I'm, I'm good. I filled my bucket. Um, and so now I live in Denver and um, again, transitioning from kind of like the big, big food and plant-based uh, space to now startup environment in this nascent uh, category. So, you know, a big journey, but yeah. I think a lot of things led me here um, throughout my life. For sure. Um, and um, you took your uh, plant-based journey after watching Forks Over Knives uh, document. When, when was that? Gosh, it was probably, well, I think it came out 10 years ago and that's about when I watched it. Wow. Um, yeah. And that was interesting because, you know, I was always, again, I grew up in all these different countries and cultures, right? So I was exposed to different food. And, and mind you, the first time I ever had Japanese food or Mexican food was in the US. So I grew up my entire kind of upbringing into your early adulthood, eating essentially, you know, Russian food, and then maybe a little bit of, you know, British food. And and then I, like my world just blew open. Like the first time I, my, my first date with my husband, we went to Chili's um, and we had the quesadilla and like my mind was blown. I didn't even know what it was. I was like, I couldn't, I didn't know how to read it on the menu. I was like, what is this, tor you know, what is this quesadilla? And my husband's like, what's well, a tortilla? Which I'm like, okay, what's a tortilla? Like <laughs> step this back for me. Um, so my palate and kind of my understanding of food was very much evolving. And then when I watched and I didn't know anything about plant-based eating really or, or diets effect on health. And then we watched this documentary together and my husband is a physician and he also has a degree from uh, Harvard School of Public Health. So we just dove in, you know, we read the China study, we read all these other studies and it just kind of blew open this Pandora's box of, of knowledge. Um, and I, I love kind of digging in and reading about about topics very deeply. So um, started reading a lot of books about longevity, diet, um, uh, how, wh how, what effect does it have on, on people, you know, today and into the future. Mm. Um, and so our family kind of has been going through this period for the last, you know, 10 years of, of kind of slowly the transformation of what foods we bring and, and how we cook them and choices we make. And, you know, I'll be fully transparent. I'm not a vegan today, even. I'm, I'm kind of on a spectrum, I guess, of, you know, probably 80% plant-based. Um, and there's reasons for that. And we can, we can dig into it. But I think I see a lot of people on the journey. There's more people out there who are on the journey than those, you know, who are already kind of fully plant-based or fully vegan. And I think there's such an opportunity for us to engage um, and, and kind of, take them further on their journey and give them these amazing products to then kind of move the move the greater population toward plant-based so, totally and I, I agree with you everyone everyone goes through different periods of transition so uh, and that's actually the market that you want to approach with because that's the right. fastest one that will will 
uh, start to reduce as the first step um, to right. get there. Um, the um, Forks Over Knives, by the way, have got a really good app for recipes. I don't know if you've seen they it. They do, they uh, do. And, and the, the Center for Nutrition Studies uh, puts out a lot of um, amazing recipes. So yeah, there, there's, if you are a dedicated person today, you have so many more options than even what we did 10 years ago, mm. right? In terms of just easily accessible foods and really amazing recipes and choices, you know, that even at, at some of the restaurants, and I think the restaurants are probably the last laggard frontier in this space um, but even at restaurants there there's a number of them where you could go to you can get a really great vegan options that's no longer just you know i guess we'll make you a steamed broccoli you know thing yeah, yeah. <laughs> so uh we're, we're coming along but it, it's not perfect right it, it is nowhere near uh where we need to be yeah so what do you think is the optimum way to eat then as whilst we're right well food? so um, if you ask me from like, what's the perfect way to eat? I think whole foods, plant-based diet from all the research that I've seen and read is the best way to eat, right? And, and I know people like to jump on these crazy diets and there's keto and paleo and this and that. And of all of them, I think the only one that has real peer-reviewed scientific backing is the whole food plant-based diet. And you see that through longevity studies, which to me is probably the best indicator of what's the right way to eat. Because could you go and lose 20 pounds on a keto diet? Sure, right? You can exclude whole food group and lose weight. I don't care what you exclude, right? Carbs, you can dump, dump meat, you can dump whatever you want to do. When you make drastic changes, you're going to see some impact. The challenge for me is that that impact is, is almost never lasting, right? Mm. And even the, the there's been study upon study of diet trends. And what you see is that people kind of drop their weight and then they abandon their diet because it's unsustainable. And then they gain it all back plus some, right? Mm, like these yeah. restrictive diets are just, they don't really work. And the only one that's, you know, sustainable and, and there's longevity impact to it is the whole food plant-based diet where you see people actually living longer, healthier, right? And that's mm. the other piece about longevity. When I bring this up, people say, I don't want to live to a hundred. What, what, because you assume you're going to be in a wheelchair in a nursing home, but that doesn't have to be the case, right? Those, yeah. uh, those uh, long-lived centenarians, they live these vibrant, bustling lives. You know, they're biking mm. and hiking and, and they're involved in their communities and, and they're leaders in their uh, communities and they're 100 years old and they're fiery and sharp as can be, right? That's longevity. Uh, it's, yeah. it's, it's, it's maintaining vitality and vibrancy throughout your time. And there's a really interesting body of research um, around blue zones. So there's 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 several areas in the world that have been identified as blue zones, and and you know places like Okinawa, Japan, Sardinia, Italy, Loma Linda, California, where researchers have studied these places. And it, there's a couple of great documentaries on um, on Netflix if you wanted to kind of dig into the, the research. But basically, what they realized is is these areas had disproportionate number of these, you know, centenarians that, that are just living these vibrant lives and are happy. And there's, you know, three X or four X of them more than in any other community. And so these longevity researchers and lifestyle researchers and nutrition researchers kind of all went and, and studied these populations. And what they found is, you know, there's several key tenants to, to that. And so it's, it's a lifestyle. It's not just a diet, but 
they, they eat primarily plant-based. They're not all exclusively vegan. They don't know the word vegan. They don't call themselves that. They're just, they eat fruits and vegetables pretty much all the time. And, and meat or dairy is like a, a flavoring compound or a celebration food. I like how they, somebody referred to in one of the movies as meat as the celebration food. Like we go to a wedding, we have a meat, but that's about it, right? Like it's not an every day or week or month occurrence. Um, they are very active. So there's this physical exercise component and it's not that they go and they do CrossFit, right? They're, they're walking, they're hiking, they're working in their garden, they're working on their farm, but they are active every single day. Um, they are very connected to community. So there's this component of connectedness that is critical and I think is missing in so many other health and wellness conversations. Uh, but what they found is these people either belong to, you know, a faith community that's very tight knit, or they literally have these tight circles, like in Okinawa, Japan, you're kind of assigned a, a tribe at birth, essentially, with like your five people that are with you throughout your life. And they're your best friend, they're your support structure, they're your connection. Um, so it's almost like by design, they have this group of friends. Um, and, and then the, the fourth one, I think, is, that's really important is, is purpose. These people have a sense of purpose. Um, and again, I think that's something that's missing from a lot of the health and wellness conversations is why do you get out of bed? You know, what drives you? What gives you energy? What gets you excited? And there's not like this um, warped perception of like, I go to work and I slug it out and then I finally retire and then I get to live my life. There's, there's not that concept, right? It's people who are living these purposeful lives well past retirement. In fact, retirement is kind of a non-event in many of their lives because they're so busy and so involved and, and they're living this full life that is worth living, right? So they, the fifth one, I think, was this characterization of the zestful life, like this desire to live and learn and connect and travel, right? And, and do all these things. So it's a lifestyle. But again, going back to diet, it is very much underpinned by eating a predominantly plant-based diet. So if you ask me what the best way to live is, it's whole food plant-based diet. I do think, however, that in you know the United States where I live, that takes work. It's not an easy thing because we're surrounded by McDonald's and this and that, and we are overscheduled and overburdened and we have junk food at every turn. And, you know, my kids go to school, there is no option for whole food plant-based diet, right? Um, they go to a birthday party, there's pizza and cake. Um, you know, you go to work, there's work events. So socially and logistically and structurally, you have to go really against the grain of society in this society to live a whole food plant-based lifestyle, which is unfortunate, right? Because we're kind of designing our way into this unhealthy system that's bad for us. And then, you know, also takes a toll on the planet mm. and in relation to the planet um you know do, do you think that it should be our generation uh, responsibility to to help make this transition or 100%. should it be left to the, to, the, to, to our children <laughs> absolutely not i mean honestly i wish it was our parents generation that really paid attention yeah. right um mm. if you look at at climate science the early signs, the early knowledge was there back in the 60s, mm. right? Yeah. Nobody, nobody cared or listened or, or really paid attention. And even for me, to be honest with you, kind of in parallel with my, 
nutrition learning, I kind of had a similar um, awakening to the climate science, right? And, and similarly, I think it started maybe a, a tad bit later when Al Gore's Inconvenient Truth movie came out. Honestly, for me, that was the first time I heard of climate science. Mm, yeah. um, and, and it was like, what? Uh, yeah, I have no then, idea, right? Because you yeah. don't feel it day to day. At, back in 2006, I think it came out. Yeah. You couldn't, you didn't sense that yet in, in your personal life. So unless somebody told you, you didn't know. And so it kind of like, again, opened up this knowledge floodgates of what's happening, right, yeah. in, in the world. And, and so I... And in that documentary, you've got that that graph that he shows, right? And, just killer, uh, right? With, and With uh, animal agriculture. Um, the thing is that he, I think he, at that time, he thought it was quite a cultural thing not to delve into that so much. He didn't go, go into the food. next one and go yeah. for transportation, right? Um, and he said it would come in stages. Um, yes. But I wish it was pushed on a bit more uh, as a topic of like what can be done at that early stage. I know, I know. And, yeah. and, and again, like I think as a society, right? And, and I'm obviously on a front end of the curve as far as learning about these things, but I think a lot of people are now starting to see the connection, right? Yeah, and yeah. so for me, it was, you know, started with the inconvenient truth and then kind of reading as, as I went. But I would say the last few years is where it really hit home for me and and this summer specifically it became very personal because you know you read about it and it, it, there's there's such a drumbeat of this negativity of like you know everything's falling apart or systems are breaking or destroying the amazon and you feel powerless right like there's this sense of like horror because you, you hear about these things and you read the reports and you're like oh my god and yet you feel powerless of like, okay, I put solar panels on my roof and I'm recycling like a crazy person, but I'm not making a dent, right? Like nothing I do is making a dent. And so I kind of felt that way for, for a number of years where I'm like, well, I don't know what I could do, right? So my perspective was like, I started learning about food. I'm like, hey, plant-based food is not only good for you, it's actually like amazing for the planet. Like it actually is all connected and, and we're all part of the same ecosystems. We're not these things living in a vacuum. And, and this summer when, you know, I know Australia had bushfires, California mm. had terrible fires, Colorado had, had awful um, fires as well. And, and our mm. air was filled with smoke. And, you know, where I live, I could see the Flatiron uh, Mountains and I literally couldn't see the mountains wow. and, and I'm less than 10 miles away. Um, and my kids were playing in the backyard and it just hit me. I'm like, here I am. Like I live in this beautiful, you know, top of the world. Like I live in Colorado. It's this wonderful you know, country, top power of the world. And I, you know, have a wonderful job and, you know, we're well off and I can, I can control so much of my children's, you know, experience, right? Like I can choose where, what we eat, where we live. Like I can send them to private school if I want to. And yet I could not protect them from what's happening around them, like the air they breathe. Mm. And I, and essentially realizing that within their lifetimes, there will be such dire consequences where their future is no longer certain to an extent that you and I future was, right? Mm, mm. Um, and, and there's nothing I could do about it. And I think for me, like that just hit home. And as a parent, that was such a call to action for me to say, hell, I'm going to do something about it, right? And so for me, like when you ask who, whose job it is, it's absolutely our job. Um, one, because for our kids, it will be too late. Like my kids are... 10, 10 and, and seven, 
by the time they're of voting age, it will be too late. Mm, yeah. um, and so, and, and by the time they reach any sort of economic um, prosperity or ability to control these systems, it will be doubly too late. Like it's, it's 30 years out. And then I look at us, I'm like, look, but our generation, we have the skills, mm. right? Mm. We are now in this, you know, we're top of our careers in many cases, right? Or, or, or getting close to uh, points of influence in our, in our jobs. And we have these amazing technologies, you know, plant-based food has come a long, long way. This new technology, cell-based meats are coming. Um, Fermentation-enabled foods are coming. There is so much impact that we can have in the next 10 years before my kids head off to college um, to mm. transform the food system. So yeah. for me, that was the realization of it is on us because we know, yeah. right? Like there's no longer this being in the dark about climate um, and we can. And when you know and you can, there's no other way. Uh, you have to. Yeah. So, so yeah, I, I totally agree with you. Um, and uh, I think there's definitely more that we should be doing in our in our generation. Um, and I also think that things need to be done quite a lot on the educational level, especially at schools. And schools need to be uh, more open, actually, to look at different diets and and push the whole food plant-based diet to to their children not just give them you know uh, the fast foods that they're used to right right Um, so yeah i'd like to see more projects and initiatives like that going and i'd like to see some of the plant-based companies actually put spend towards that uh you know uh, uh, that sector as well Mm. and as well as the lobbying that needs to happen with government. Oh my gosh, right. Well, you know what, for me, I do think we need to educate the parents because- yeah. That's the first so, thing. So many consumers work that I do, right, in my in my life um, is, is talking and observing consumers and seeing what is it that they know and do. And the knowledge gap that is out there is tremendous, right? Like you and I and people in the plant-based community, oh, we are very deep into the space, but if you go and you look at talk to average Americans, there's very, very little awareness of connection between diet and health and nutrition. Right. And there's a little bit of that starting to happen with COVID, which again is like one of those weird silver linings of COVID is people are starting to connect. Hey, look, if you have, you know, all these comorbidities, your experience of COVID is going to be a lot harder. Right. And why do you have these comorbidities? Well, it's driven by your food, but I tell you, where I think we need to start is a with with doctors. So my husband went to, to Harvard Medical School, mm. and there is no education for doctors around health and nutrition and longevity. Like he had to kind of learn that on his own. Yeah, um, it's not part of medical practice. You know, I, I even we talked to my husband about like, hey, do you tell your patients about you know this plant based diet? And he's like, no, I I actually shouldn't or can't right because yeah, they can't because they're restricted it, it, to certain to, to, right. to tell them about certain uh correct time is only like 10 yeah. minutes so you can't get into this but also it's not right. it's not considered standard medical practice so as a physician you're in a way prohibited from from kind of telling talking about some of that or using that as therapy like using that as therapy would not be considered standard medical practice Mm. Um, so I think we need to start with physicians. That's super important because so many people go to their physician and they're, you know, overweight and they, and they have this heavy meat and dairy diet and they have you know, yeah. diabetes, heart disease, you name it. And, and the doctors just give them pills to treat the symptoms exactly. and they don't broach the conversation yeah. 
And we yeah, know from the studies, right, that... Prescription should be in a whole food plant-based diet, yeah, right? Totally, yeah. How many diseases you can treat with that? Yeah. And yet that's not what we do. So I think we need... The, there's, there's education work and policy work that needs to happen at healthcare level. Um, there's education work that needs to happen toward consumers. And where I see a lot of, you know, vegan or vegan brands or vegan people kind of create alienation because they're, they're so myopic and, and, you know, they're so like all in or nothing approach that it alienates these folks. And I think we, we mm. need to meet people kind of where we are, where they are. And, you know, if, if you've never tried, you know, an almond milk, like I salute you for trying it. Like, even if that's the only thing, because then you start it, you're on your journey. If, if all of a sudden you decide to do a vegan uh, dinner on a Tuesday, I salute you. That's awesome. Because guess what? You're going to have it a few times. You're going to discover more things. And then you're going to do it twice a week. And then you're going three times a week, et cetera. Right? And then you're going to discover some amazing vegan ice cream. And you're like, hey, this is pretty good. I'll eat that again. Right? So it's a combination of telling people about it in a way that's not guilt ridden yeah totally yeah. Um, because yeah. guilt just it just doesn't work doesn't work no no yeah and um so tell me about your time uh, a little bit uh when you were at denon and um you know especially how you dealt with internal conflicts between the traditional dairy business and the plus the plant-based business that you were sort of leading there Right. So, so a little bit of history, right? So Danone purchased uh, what was White Wave Foods, which owned uh, brands like Silk and So Delicious, which are, are plant-based brands in 2016 um, as a way of kind of getting into plant-based business. And in Europe, um, Alpro and Provabel are, are the two brands, right? Um, they're kind of cousins, I would say, across the, the pond. Mm. And um, it's been a, tr it's been a transition for, for the company to, you know, to assimilate these new businesses um, but I would say it's not different or atypical, right? You could see a lot of um, large food companies now acquiring smaller brands or trying to build their own. So the intention, I think, from a kind of a big company strategy is, you know, for Danone to, you know, to get into this business. And, the, you know, the ambition, I think, was publicly announced is to, to double the size of that business by 2025. So, it's already a very large business. You know, Silk is a leading brand of plant-based beverages in the in the U.S. Um, so it, it's it's a massive business, very highly scaled, and and to grow that two x is is quite a massive undertaking. So I would say the the strategic intent and the desire is to actually push on the gas on, on these businesses. And you know, if you look at Danone portfolio and the categories they play, especially in the last year, plant-based was the engine that drove a lot of growth, right? Because mm. that's what during the pandemic, it, it really um, d delivered a lot of growth. Mm. So there's, there's that, but then I guess there's also just whenever you have this house of brands strategy, right? And, and you have, a, especially if you, if you house kind of a dairy and non-dairy or meat and plant-based meat brand, there's a little bit of that, you know, conflict, right? Because it's, it's one V the other, a lot of the times, um, but I would say the way we, the way we reconcile it is look, look as we've talked, majority of our consumers have both in their houses, uh, and even as we went into homes for, for research for plant-based beverages, a lot of the times it's many consumers have more than one milk in their fridge, right? They might have dairy milk and almond milk for you and soy milk for me and you know coconut milk for for the curry that we're gonna make. Mm. So, milk 
in, in consumers' minds has become this thing. And um, for older generation, it's, you know, mostly dairy milk for, for you and I, it's kind of a blended thing. And for my kids, it's like, what milk? And when they say, when I ask you, would you want some milk? They ask me which milk, because to them, it's, it, it's a, it's a thing that you drink and, and they don't really, do you want soy milk or almond milk, coconut milk? Like that's, that's milk in their world, right? So it's changing dramatically with consumers. And I think it's changing dramatically with food manufacturers as well. So, well, there's a little bit of, you know, you know, it, it, would Silk ever totally talk down on, on dairy milk and, and hammer them? Probably not. Um, but I would say that's also not how our consumers necessarily think. So it probably wouldn't really be that productive um, to put that message out anyway, right? But mm-hmm. there, there's a little bit of liberty that comes, you know, when you're a startup and you only have one product, like, you know, a, an impossible, where you could really go hard against you can go, animal yeah. agriculture and, yeah. you know, and, and put a stand on the ground and, and be yeah. more of that kind of a hero warrior so, type. Going back to the innovation uh, topic, um, why aren't these big corporates being more innovative in terms of the types of even plant-based products that they're putting out there versus following a traditional approach or investing in these labs and R&D? You know, there's, there's this, uh, you know, when I'm working with this company Undertone that I work for on the marketing side, there's mm-hmm. two areas that we either have an exploit division, which effectively means that you're, you're nurturing your existing business and then you have an explore uh, where you're exploring new things and we mm-hmm. separate those two. So we always have a, an area of innovation uh, to be mm-hmm. working on. Why are these big companies also looking into the cell based or the fermentation processes and mm. just spending a bit more having earmarking a certain budget for this? Um, they are looking at it, right? I think to me, it's a and Dinner has a, a sizable, you know, R&D department and a sizable marketing department that's dedicated to innovation, right? I actually was a part of an innovation team for, for a couple of years. Um, and, and so to me, it's not that they're not innovating. They are, right? Uh, and you see these big food companies. If you look at the number of new products launching every year, a lot of them come from these big food companies in, in plant-based space. You know, Danone launches... I don't know how many, but, you know, multiple SKUs each year from the mm. plan-based portfolio. So the innovation is happening. I think that the nuance there is the kind of innovation. So when you look at, there is what I call, um, you know, incremental innovation, and then there's disruptive innovation. Incremental innovation is when you have a, you know, silk, let's say it's a silk portfolio with all these plan-based beverages <clears throat> and you stepping it out into, you know, either flavors, so like uh, I could launch a, a new flavor of uh, almond milk, right? Or <clears throat> adjacent spaces like um, I have silk almond milk and maybe I have a coffee in my portfolio, we can make a latte, right? Like I, I've, I've launched a, a silk uh, plant-based latte product mm. where you're kind of putting adjacencies together mm. or you can get into you know, ice cream or something like that, but it's big categories, yeah, established products, where you can get to scale very quickly. So it, it, it does come down to the scale, like so the ingredients need to be scale scalable, like if they're using a certain, so they might not be able to test all these new things that just don't have the scale or, or ready enough to go it into is a, I think it's a structural thing, right? So when you think about disruptive innovation, so on, on an incremental innovation, you get it, like it's, we it fits within our process, it fits within our lines, we can procure ingredients at scale, 
we know there's an established category so we can project you know how many units we could sell we can talk to our retailer and say hey if you add this one skew on shelf we can predict with great degree of certainty how much we could sell mm. and that gives everybody confidence and it creates a large business, right? So the, the few launches that I personally worked on were multi-million dollar year one sales, right? Um, now, if you look at disruptive innovation, it's very, very different. You, typically, it's very small because the niche is, hasn't been developed. The consumer base is still small. Um, and, and maybe it doesn't necessarily go into Walmart or Target or, you know, uh, a Kroger chain right away needs to live in these independent small grocery stores or in farmers markets or you know like a, a lot of the kind bars you know they started I believe in um, was it the RX bars they started within the um, CrossFit community so they went through the gyms right so you find these little niche yeah. spaces and they're over a billion right kind well suddenly yeah. 10 years oh. in the making yeah. right like yeah. not suddenly suddenly yeah. to you and I even yeah. you know impossible had a long start that was quiet and through you know the food uh, QSRs etc. Until mm. they hit, we we've all found out about them when they hit you know Impossible Burger right. But they've yeah. been at it for for a number of years, and and structurally when you talk about a large food company, they struggle to fit that kind of infrastructure uh, in terms of scale. You know because even in you know managing innovation just the size of production tanks and the lines and the optimization. And, you know, we need to send a truckload of something. We don't buy it by, you know, a pound. We buy it by truckload, right? We order packaging by millions. And, and the system is optimized to do that, right? And so it's really, really hard for a large company to do this little stuff because then you essentially have to separate and, and operate that entire business outside of the system. And on top of it, when you're, you know, put yourself in an, general managers choose when you're looking at look we can launch this obscure you know bar product that we will sell you know maybe a hundred thousand of and spend our resources and people and talent and you know money launching that or we can take all the same people and resources and launch you know a two million dollar line extension flavor of ice cream as a business manager who sits in a corporate you know environment you are not able to choose the smaller thing unless the big things are all delivering. So it just, it creates this incentive that is structural, right? And, and um, Clay Christensen from, from Harvard Business School, you know, wrote a whole book about this, right? On the innovator's dilemma. Yes. And, I, and, and, yep. and it's still very, very, very relevant today uh, because it's such a structural issue. And I would say uh, it's not unique to Danone by any means. It's every large CPG. Um, and that's why you see them either investing in startups through their venture arms like the 301 um inc at general mills or denon has manifesto ventures um or buying brands after they had gone through that ramp up period and then there's you know a market and a consumer and a product that's been identified that's yeah. not big enough and mm -hmm. and then they take it over and I, i'll tell you it makes sense for them to take it over because they play the big companies such an important role in, in democratizing these trends, right? It, it it's super important for them to take it over, put it in their system, make it cheaper, make it you know source the ingredients better, um, to and then blow it out through the distribution. So all of a sudden you take the small trend that you know 
started somewhere in California and now it's in every Walmart in the country and anybody can buy it. And, and now the pricing is more reasonable and, and that's huge, right? Because mm-hmm. then you're taking something that's small and making it big and available. And you think about the food revolution, right? You're giving it to the masses of people that now have access to it. Right. So I think it's, it's super important. And, and um, you know, I was very proud to, to be a part of, uh, of the plant-based business unit because that was my role in a way it, it is, is to drive this democratization yeah. of the trends. But then, you know, I, now I've decided to actually to jump, you know, to the forefront of it and, and do something entirely different and unique um, at a much smaller scale. But yeah. I believe that will come as well. I think the important point there is, you know, you, you want to make it uh, at an affordable price, especially for those low income families right. that want to eat healthier, but can't yes. afford to, you know. Right. So um, I think that's really important the way these products need to be catering for that market at the same time. Right. And um, it's not lower income. It's, it's almost everybody, right? It's almost, almost so everybody. Who can afford to pay 2x for an equivalent product? Exactly. There's, yeah. there's only so many of them, right? Um, yeah. And if you, if you really want to make a dent in, in climate, and if you really want to make a dent in public health, right, and the health of our communities, you have to bring this to the masses. And it cannot be two, three X priced product. It needs to be, you know, almost price parity, right? Maybe a little bit more, but it cannot be so much more because then it's just that choice, right? It's about giving people choice. Yeah. Um, and that choice becomes hard to make. So at the moment, you know, globally, I guess, you know, the plant-based movement, I guess, excluding flexitarians might be about 1% or so. Um, what's going to transcend that space faster? You know, what's the it going to flexitarians will, actually. Um, yeah. I, I, to me, that's, that's the solution, right? Because, you know, vegan, vegan consumers are, are passionate people, right? And, and they're so important to this community. But like you said, they're one, two percent of population, and th- there's more of them, right? So even if you grow at two x, right, you go from one percent to two percent, it's an impressive growth rate, but it's still a very small number of consumers. The flexitarians today are probably close to thirty percent of global population, and with COVID, that number has increased significantly. Like mm-hmm. just in the UK alone, um, the studies that I'm seeing, it's closer to forty percent now that's the bucket that moves the needle, Mm. right? Because Mm. to me, it's the people who are looking at the landscape and they're saying, look, maybe I can't go all the way for whatever reason. Maybe it's, it's societal. Maybe it's just the cultural, maybe it's just, you know, it doesn't fit into my life or my day. I cannot go source a vegan something every time and and be satisfying. Right. But they're willing to play. Like they hear you. They they, they understand the science. They understand the climate uh, debate. They want to do this, but to them, it comes down to accessible, affordable, and delicious food. So to me, it's, it's our job is to give them as many of these choices as possible. So for me personally, you know, when I travel, it's really hard to stay plant-based, right? Airport, good luck finding something to eat. Um, when you're traveling on a road trip, McDonald's is often your only option, um, you know, or when you are, like I said, for, for kids for school, there is not such options, right? For a work cafeteria, oftentimes there aren't very many options. Um, and as a, you know, I'm a foodie. I love food. Like I'm not a martyr in a food department. I love to eat. Um, and so for me, it comes down to if there is an option that's delicious and accessible, I will absolutely choose it. 
But if there isn't, I'm probably not going to sit there and, and just munch on, on just straight up broccoli. Um, and so I think that's where the 30% sit. And so our job is to do as much as possible to give them these choices. And if we do, they will come along and I think they'll come along really fast. Mm. Um, and that's why I believe that, you know, Impossible and Beyond did such an amazing job. You know, mm. bean burgers have been around forever. You know, tofu bread, they've been around, yeah. but the household penetration was like this big. Mm. And, and what they've done is they made it accessible, delicious, and, and relatively affordable for all these people to now jump on board and delicious being the operative word when it comes to burger, right? Because that's why you eat it. Um, I think same is now happening at large scale with plant-based beverages. Uh, there's so many choices and they're, they're priced relatively close. That's why you see 20% market share come on board. Places like cheese and yogurt and ice cream a lot lower because of the taste and availability. And when you look at how many people eat at restaurants, uh, especially quick service restaurants, that's the last domain. Like if you all of a sudden now starting to get, you know, like Chipotle sofritas, um, a great choice, very satisfying, easily available. But that's one, right? Where's everyone else? Mm. So we need to start seeing more and more of that coming. And as more of that becomes available, I know in the UK, there's a couple of companies that are doing whole meal kit deliveries that are vegan. Yeah. Amazing, uh, right? There's so, actually one that I spoke to the other day called Eight Seasons, uh, not, not not so widely known. Yeah. Um, but I just got, I received, the, they kindly sent me a, a box the other day and it's great. Like, you know, you get organic food, you get a, a, a meal uh, recipe mm-hmm. kit. Uh, and their focus is also to look at the health angle. So, yes. you know, if you have this meal kit, you're likely to reverse your type two diabetes, for example. Right, right. I mean, that, I think those, that connection really does start to make sense. And they saw a massive rise this year of people doing it because of mm-hmm. being at home. And but you're at home, home, you're cooking anyway, you might as well cook better, right? Yeah. Um, and so to me, like I see so many places, right? It's not just one area. There's so many places from all these angles, right? You see big food jumping in, you see startups jumping in, you see food delivery, you see restaurants. And, and more importantly, now you see a lot of... Um, that midstream money coming in, which I think is super important, right? Venture mm. capital money is coming in, mm. institutional money is coming in because now the investors are, are kind of, again, having the moment and saying, look, we cannot just put our money to traditional you know, energy and, and dairy sectors. Exactly. We yeah. want to invest. That's creating tremendous momentum for so, these companies. Yeah. Um, so that's why when, you know, we're almost bringing it back to the Rethink X report, it yeah. sounds unfathomable to say an entire industry will change over in 10 years. And it's, it's massive, right? And yet when you're seeing change happen in so many places and in so many systems all at the same time, it becomes credible, yeah. uh, which I think is fascinating. And that's why I'm more hopeful um, about the future now than I was you know, a few years ago. Yeah. because I see so much change coming. Yeah, totally. So yeah, very excited for you now in, the, in this uh, new company that you're in. Um, I'm sure you're going to work your manager there as well. Um, thanks a lot for coming on the show today. It's been a great chat. And uh, yeah, keep, keep, keep me posted with your progress and hopefully see you again soon. Yeah, thanks for having me. Okay, take Bye. care. Bye.